everyone. Welcome to Sober, Stories of Badgers Empowering Recovery. This is a podcast hosted by Wisconsin Voices for Recovery. Wisconsin Voices for Recovery is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, we serve as a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. My name is Cindy Brzezinski, Director of Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and joining me today is Matt Traver, President of Never Give Up, whose mission is to provide resources for those who face substance use and mental health challenges or those who have dealt with any adverse life situation. Welcome, Matt. Uh, we look forward to talking with you today. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So to start, if you could tell me a little bit about yourself, including your professional background, your current role. All right. <clears throat> My name is uh, Matthew Traver. Um, I am president of Never Give Up. Also, it's N-G-U-L-U, Inc. That's the official name of our nonprofit. Um, it stands for Never Give Up, Level Up. Um, and, you know, I was just someone who struggled with mental health my whole life. And then for the greater part of 25 years, up until I was 38, I struggled with substance abuse as well. Um, you know, my, my background is, uh, you know, a lot of research as far as being in active addiction. And then I have, uh, five years and some change, absolute sobriety. Um, I, you know, I just, uh, I don't really have a professional background per se, but I was a graduate of the Brown County Treatment Program, and my current role is the president of Never Give Up. And what that is, I go around and interact and network with people, and uh, you know, let them know what we're doing in the community. Um, our organization right now is in the infancy stages of its 501c3. Uh, we, you know, we've only been a fully functioning nonprofit for a little over a year. Um, we did have some challenges along the way, but we're here now. Um, yeah. Great, great. It sounds like you are moving forward and and really uh, set up to do some great things in your community. Yes, ma'am. You know, like um, right now, like, you know, the first, you know, this far this year so far, we've given two donations to other nonprofits because that's what we're doing in the, at the current moment is uh, raising money. Um, our long-term goal is like sober living and prison reentry homes. But as of right now, we're just getting better integrated with our community, fellow nonprofits, fellowships, things like that. Um, but we did give two monetary donations to Amanda's House of Green Bay and Mana for Life Ministries in Green Bay as well. Um, you know, and then this last Saturday, we had our third official meet and greet, um, which was basically just getting everyone that's a member of the, the Facebook group or the page a chance to interact with people on each other on a personal level. Um, you know, because especially after COVID, when everyone was so isolated and separated, um, it was very important for us to do things like that because of, you know, after COVID and after lockdown, um, everyone just got like separated and like detached from one another. So we're trying to get everyone back together, you know, to build support structures for, for you know, anyone who struggles with anything, addiction, mental health, you know, things like that, because people like me who suffer with addiction and mental health isolation and being separated, you know, no happy, healthy human connection is, um, it's a big deal to us. So that's what we're doing currently at this moment. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, that really speaks to the importance of connection, mm -hmm. connection and support. It sounds like you're doing some meaningful work. Um, can you tell us why this type of work within the community is important? Um, 
Uh, it's just really important to stay connected, you know, and like we work with other nonprofits, you know, again, with, uh, you know, other resources in the community, you know, between Green Bay, Sheboygan, uh, Marinette County, as far, you know, like last week, I was uh, in the UP of Michigan with, you know, talk, talking to families against narcotics, um, because like, you know, when I was in active addiction, um, there was resources literally right in front of me, and I didn't know about it. So what we're trying to do is, you know, basically become, you know, at this point right now, you know, day to day, the, you know, the Amazon for anything that afflicts you, you know, basically, um, you know, because people need resources, you know, they, they, they don't have access to them because they, sometimes they're just not aware, you know, and for me, you know, and for me, again, like the same place I used to pick up drugs is the, the place I now work on my recovery. You know, it's the Man for Life Ministries in Green Bay. I go to a lot of meetings there. I do a lot of work with it. You know, I donate clothes and clothes and time to them and we donate money to them. And like I said, I, I used to sit in the parking lot of that building for, you know, hours waiting on people to come. And I didn't even realize that all the help I needed was right through the door of the building I was, you know, sitting in front of. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're doing at this moment. Right, um, so making quite... connections. Yes, ma'am. Making connections and raising awareness. Absolutely. So Awesome. Awesome. So how did you start out? Um, where did the idea for this organization come through? If you could walk me through the conceptualization to its development. Okay. Um, Never Give Up was actually founded or started um, April 1st of 2020. My best friend, David John Peters, um, rest his soul, rest in peace. He, um, he, March 31st, he actually relapsed. Um, during, you know, right before everyone got locked down, you know, he was about three months sober. And I remember I went over there to talk him off the ledge, so to speak, you know, because he was struggling, you know, he was still in, you know, in the active, you know, relapse or, you know, he was still using the drugs or he's still high. And then the next day, April 1st, 2020, um, I'm like, are you going to go get your white key tag? Are you going to go get your chip? You know, or, or are you going to start over from scratch? And he just said, no, I don't want to go to a meeting and pick up a white chip. I don't want to go to a place where I feel like people are judging me because that was the biggest thing he had issues with was there was a lot of judgment in a lot of the rooms he went to. So mm -hmm. what he did, you know, I went to work that day. And then what he had done was started the Facebook group, Never Give Up. And, you know, from that, you know, it, you know, I got off work and he, he told me what he was doing. And I was like the eighth member or whatever. And he, you know, but what it did, it created a judgment-free zone for everyone to just come and talk about their stuff, what they were struggling with, their triumphs, their victories, you know, their successes, their failures, you know, but it was a judgment-free zone. And we made sure to stick to the script of that because, you know, like with anything on social media, there's a lot of opinions and a lot of things like that. Mm -hmm. And we were able to, to like keep it, keep it moving, so to speak, where people came, could come on, online, especially because April 1st, you know, like within the next couple of days, the whole country got locked down, mm -hmm. you know, and everybody was in panic, everyone was isolated. And, um, you know, then he started sharing his story, you know, of recovery and addiction and being in and out of the prison system. And then I was the second person, you know, to share my story, but it gave people something to you know, an outlet because, you know, the world was, you know, in a, in a state of fear at that moment. And, and, you know, then someone else shared their story and so on and so on. And, you know, through hearing our testimonies as well as the other people's, you know, that came along after us, it gave people hope and it gave people, you know, 
an option to never give up, so to speak. You know, we, uh, you know, because like for me, as well as David, um, you know, the thing that really helped my recovery and was hearing other people's testimonies because, you know, we all feel that we had done the worst of the worst. You know, we mm-hmm. were the, the worst drug addict ever. We were the worst, you know, criminal ever. We did the most horrible stuff. And then we heard other people's testimonies and see to see them living good, clean, happy, joyous lives, you know, after mm-hmm. all the stuff they had talked about that they had done in their addiction or their, their, their criminal career. It gave me hope. It gave Dave hope. So we, that's what we were trying to do in the infancy stages of Never Give Up, which is to give each other, give each other hope that there is a better way out there. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter all the stuff you had in your past, your past doesn't define you. And that's what Never Give Up was ultimately founded in basis to do. That's great. So focusing on that hope, that creation of the safe space where there isn't judgment, really important. And, and hope is really important for, for recovery and coming into recovery as well. Absolutely. Yeah. What challenges did you encounter along the way um, as Never Give Up developed and how did you overcome them? Um, you know, again, it was just, you know, the timing with COVID and everything being locked down, a lot of restricted movement because we had gained uh, a lot of traction real fast because, you know, within, I think it was like three weeks, we had a thousand members and then by by the end of the month, we were at 5,000. And I think within three months, we were we were pushing, you know, 7,500. And we wanted to get everyone together, you know, to meet and greet each other, you know, just like our event on Saturday. Yep. So some of the challenges I encountered along the way, as well as, you know, David, John, and, and the Never Give Up, you know, board was, you know, just getting in the rooms with people because at that moment in time, everyone was so busy dealing with bigger problems as far as like COVID, and then, you know, the, 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 the riots after the George Floyd incident, you know, because the police were busy with that, because we were trying to get in contact with a lot of, you know, people on certain boards or, you know, the police and, you know, like people as well that ran the fellowships, you know, trying to get them on board to come together as one, you know, under one umbrella, which would be never give up. And they, they were so busy dealing with bigger picture problems that they did, you know, they, we didn't really have time to interact with them. They would, you know, respond to us. And, you know, we'll, we'll get back to you or whatever. And then it just, you know, so it was just getting, you know, availability of people. And then we couldn't find a venue to host events and things like that, because, you know, you weren't allowed to congregate with people. You know, you could only have like four people in one place at one time, or I forget what the exact rules were, but you get what I'm saying. Like just being able to come together, it wasn't allowed. So and regardless of that, though, look at how you've grown. So you've you've been able to over, overcome those. So you have, you know, a location now where you're able to hold events, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, um, you know, again, we just had our event in Sheboygan, our third annual meet and greets. And then in June, we're doing like a, a, a cornhole tournament for a fundraiser. That's at a different venue. But like mm-hmm. once people saw that we were for real, you know, especially in Dave's hometown of Sheboygan and in my town of Green Bay, Mm-hmm. And they realized that it just wasn't a Facebook group, but what it was actually doing was helping people. People came on board really quickly. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, it, yeah, like people have been super supportive from all fellowships, all pathways of recovery. You know, we've had treatment centers, mental health facilities reach out to us, ask if they could, you know, host them as a resource on our page. And it's like, absolutely, because the more we have available, the more people we can ultimately help. So that's awesome. That's awesome. It sounds like you have a passion for this work. Where did this passion come from? Um, you know, again, I got about five years sober and 
in the beginning of my recovery, you know, so many people that did not know me, you know, mm -hmm. I, you know, because like my family had dis, you know, I don't want to say discarded me, but they stopped talking to me as they should have, because I had done so many things to hurt them. A lot of my friends from, you know, growing up or, you know, my whole life stopped talking to me because I, you know, I either got money from them or I ripped off someone they know, or, you know, but so many people in the rooms of recovery, whether it was a fellowship or my treatment facilities or whatever, had just paid it forward and helped me unconditionally with no motive. They were just motivated to see me be the best version of myself. And through the love that those people had shown me, you know, to support these people that I hardly knew in the beginning of my recovery showed me, I wouldn't be here today. So like, I, you know, it's almost like to pay homage to them, you know, or, you know, just pay it forward. You know, the example I was shown, you know, you got to help people unconditionally with no motives just to be motivated to see everyone around you succeed, strive and thrive. And that's why I'm so passionate about it today because I know what it takes or I know what it means to have one person believe in you when you don't believe in yourself. I know what it means to have one person show you love when you feel unlovable. You get what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. just know what, I just know what it's like to think that no one cares. And when someone shows you, they do, it can change your whole perspective and really give you hope and believe that there is a better life just waiting for you as long as you work for it. Yeah. So it sounds like your passion is heavily grounded in your personal experiences, hope, gratitude, um, paying it forward and all of the the support and positive experiences you had with people helping you that you want to pay it forward. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So tell me a little bit about your story and what brought you to recovery. Um, I, you know, I was addicted to methamphetamine and heroin uh, most of my adult life, you know, and I did cocaine and XC. I did everything under the sun, but for the last 10 years of my active addiction up until I was 38, I did methamphetamine and heroin every day. Mm -hmm. um, it was almost like you know, like a weird training regimen, you know, like I'd wake up in the morning and I'd shoot heroin so I wouldn't get sick. And then I would do methamphetamine so I could get out and go do some, you know, some stuff to support my addiction. Um, and then over time I would get arrested for stealing, you know, drug possession, things like that. And I got all of these little ticky tack charges, but when they finally put them all together, they wanted to give me six years in prison and six years out of prison. And I would, and I just, there was no way I was going to go to prison. So my lawyer, um, he had suggested, you know, drug court. And at that moment in time, I'd never heard of drug court. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the beginning, he told me he, when he brought it up, he goes, all right, they'll let you out. And to be totally honest with you, all I heard is that they'll let you out. And I was like, all right, sign me up. Because in my mind, I was just going to get out and use drugs again. Mm -hmm. And, but through the program of drug court, you know, they, they, they made it mandatory to go to three meetings a week, go to treatment, things like that. So they ultimately made me go to recovery meetings and work on my recovery. And that's what ultimately led to my journey of recovery was drug court um, as an alternative to prison. All right. So it sounds like it was a turning point for you. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. What did you learn about recovery as you began your own journey of recovery? Um, I learned that, you know, again, no matter what I had done, what, you know, what I had been through, you know, because things happened to me and then I made things happen that ultimate, ultimately led me to be a full-blown drug addict. Mm -hmm. So through treatment and, you know, working the steps in Narcotics Anonymous, and then I reworked them again in Heroin Anonymous, mm -hmm. it made me take a long, 
hard look at myself and my role to play in things. Um, you know, because my addiction was deeply rooted in two twin traumas from my childhood. Mm-hmm. And as I went through, you know, intensive outpatient treatment, I, you know, they did what was called a lifeline. And I, I went backwards to all the pivotal moments in my life. And I realized that like my addiction was rooted in a trauma and I had done so much, so many drugs and, you know, drank so much alcohol and just, you know, tried to be numb to what actually happened to me that I forgot all about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was, it was very eye opening. And then once I realized the, the things that led me to becoming a drug addict, what I was trying to suppress, I could ultimately work on them. Mm-hmm. And then become, you know, and then let go of it, you know, mm-hmm. because it, you know, in like, because my recovery, my journey, it was basically a bunch of moments that I became a prisoner of. And then yeah. as I went through the rooms of, you know, Narcotics Anonymous and my outpatient treatment, um, I was able to let go of those moments. Mm-hmm. And you've mentioned uh, different pathways to recovery previously. Say a little bit more about that. Can you explain, talk a little bit about multiple pathways of recovery? Absolutely. Um, you know, for me, again, I, uh, you know, I was in intensive outpatient treatment, as well as going to 12 step fellowships. And I, I've learned so much information from both. And, and in the beginning of my, you know, drug court, I had one relapse, and then they, they put me on Vivitrol, you know, which really was beneficial. Um, you know, because like in this, this era, you know, with fentanyl and methamphetamine, you know, some some of the older, you know, like traditions and, you know, 12 step rooms and things like that, it's beneficial no matter what, but there's, it's just like a new day. So I, I truly feel that there's multiple pathways to recovery. Like for me, without Vivitrol, I don't think I would have been able to hinder the physical cravings, you know, to give me enough time to work on the, the, the mental obsession, you know, and Mm -hmm. then ultimately curb, you know, and address my spiritual malady of, you know, my addiction, um, you know, cause there's so many things, you know, because like when I first got into drug court, because I was addicted to heroin and I was addicted to meth and I had mental health when the judge was like, what can we do to help you? I'm like, whatever you have, give it to me, you know, like whatever treatment, whatever resources you have, please give it to me because I need all of it. And I knew that, um, you know, I've seen smart recovery. People just work smart recovery and it worked wonders for them. I've seen people take the spiritual path and I've seen it work for them. You know, there's no silver bullet to, you know, recovering from addiction. So I feel, you know, and that's one, one of the things that never give up is, is I feel that you got to keep looking, keep digging, keep, you know, searching until you find what works for you hundred mm-hmm. percent. So there's different you know, options out there. Absolutely. Yep. And what works for one may not work for another. And maybe a couple would work for one and, there's just so much variety out there that can support recovery. Why is it important to have multiple pathways available? Because we're all different. We all have different, you know, traumas and triggers and things like that. You know, some people, you know, uh, you know, mental health is what curbs a lot of their, you know, their, their ability to recover it. Um, you know, so like, to go to a mental, you know, to go see a one-on-one, you know, specialist or coach or whatever, you know, that helped me too, because it gave me a comfortable space to talk about what was really hindering me on a daily basis, you know, to ultimately address things in the big picture. You know, like, again, I've seen so many different pathways work for so many different people because, you know, like 
people in recovery as well as people in general, we're like snowflakes. We're all the same, but we're, you know, we're all just a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know? So, you, you know, again, it's just one of those things where you got to keep finding what works for you. Um, you know, cause like, I remember when I first went to the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, cause that was the only thing available. It was like, mm-hmm. you know, seven years before I ever found recovery. And they actually like asked me to leave because I was a drug addict, not an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And that ultimately led to me not coming back to a meeting for almost five years, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, every bill, again, everyone's different. Oh, it's okay. just, it's very important to have different options and to see what works for you. You know, again, like mm-hmm. some, I've seen medical assisted treatment or, you know, recovery work for a lot of people. Again, I was on Vivitrol for the first year of my recovery. And if I wasn't on Vivitrol, that it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have made it, you know, yeah. Yeah. and then you know, I had to address mental health and I don't think if I would have done that, I would have made it. And then I don't think if I was, you know, going to the fellowships of, you know, NA and HA and CMA to work on my spiritual malady, I don't think I'd be here today. You know, and I've seen people just go to 12 steps and they're, they're happy and free from the chains of addiction. Again, I've seen people go to smart recovery and just work on the mental aspect of it. And they're free from the chains of addiction. I've seen people who work, you know, just went through medically assisted recovery or, or, you know, treatment and it worked, it worked miracles, you know, and as long as they stick to the exit strategy of the, the MATs or the MARs. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd mentioned a couple of times about medication assisted treatment or medication assisted recovery being important pathways for recovery. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your experience about this? Anything else you have to add and why you believe these are important pathways to recovery for some? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's important for some people because, you know, sometimes we have things that remain, you know, we have things that linger. Like I know people that got sober and it took them, you know, like six months to a year to where they still had anxiety mm-hmm. or, you know, PTSD, like, you know, just to be able to leave the house, you know, like they were sober, but then they were still like in the prisons of, you know, their own mind. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they would, they would go to their, their psychiatrist or their doctor and they would get a prescription, you know, and and they would, you know, take these, you know, the medication and they would be able to get out and, you know, go be, you know, functioning members of society when they normally wouldn't because, you know, their mental health was their, their biggest mm-hmm. opponent at that point because they were no longer on the drugs, but they still had like this, you know, self-doubt, self-worth, self-sabotage in their head. Mm-hmm. So just uh, speaking a little bit about the importance that medication can have for some in recovery to support their journey, to help them get stabilized and move forward to continue to grow in their recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. I am um, like for me, I, um, I just know how I get when I get dependent on stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I got like a year in drug court and my PO, you know, because I, I was really just, my anxiety was through the roof. Like, and she was like, all right, uh, you're doing really well in the program. And I think it's safe to say that you would take medication responsibly. And I, I just got to a point where I, you know, I learned how to process things and deal with my anxiety. You know, it was overwhelming on certain days, but I'm like, what happens if I don't have my prescription or if I lose it, or if I got to wait three days to refill it or whatever. And, you know, but I've seen medication, you know, taken responsibly work for so many people. Mm-hmm. And earlier you had talked a little bit about service work, uh, making connections um, that it's important to you. 
Can you say a little bit more about that, about service work? Um, for me, service work is what keeps me sober and happy today. Mm-hmm. Um, because for so long, I was, I was very parasitic. You know, I would just take and take and take and take. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like for me, you know, because we all struggle with stuff on a daily basis. You know, we all have issues. We all have things that trouble us, you know, and mm-hmm. I... You know, when I'm working, being of service to other people, I'm not focusing on my stuff Mm -hmm. and I'm helping someone through it because, you know, and then while I'm doing so, it almost minimizes or makes my problem seem trivial, you know, especially when I'm working with a newcomer or someone who's really, you know, having like a a panic attack or an anxiety attack or someone who's really, really struggling with something, you know, because... Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's all about perspective, you know, and like I've seen people in recovery, they get like five, 10 years clean and they forget where they came from, you know, and like being of service to people, whether it's in recovery or, you know, going out and picking up garbage in my community or whatever I'm doing to be of service to my fellows. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me sober and it keeps me mindful of what, you know, what, what awaits if I decide to like take my foot off the gas. Mm-hmm. So keeping that in the forefront of your, your mind supports recovery. Absolutely. And what do you believe are the benefits of service work to people in recovery in general? Um, again, it, you know, it, sometimes it's like, it's a way to live amends sometimes for me, Mm -hmm. you know, because like, for me, I I had a lot of guilt and a lot of shame because of all the horrible things I had done, even though I went through my amends list, you know, I still had this, like, you know, there were certain people I wasn't able to make amends with, you know, because they wouldn't accept them or, or they, they passed on or they're, you know, I wasn't able to reach them. So for me personally, it was just a way to like make a living amends and be, you know, make the world a little bit better than I found it because for so long, I had just tried to destroy it, whether it was my world or the people's around me. Um, you know, again, it keeps me mindful. It keeps me grounded. And, you know, if I'm out there helping someone with, you know, addiction or whatever they're struggling with, it, it keeps me sober another day. Mm-hmm. That's great. And you mentioned, so you mentioned amends and living amends. For those that might not be aware of the difference between the two, what's an amends versus a living amends? Um, You know, amends just like, you know, let's see your ninth step. You know, you go through and you make a list of the people that you had wronged during your active addiction. And then you try to make amends to them, not an apology, but amends, you know, whether it was financial, like, you know, like I, um, you know, when I was really bad into heroin, my little brother, you know, the day of his high school graduation, you know, my family gave him money and I literally watched him take his, you know, all of his graduation money, put it in his sock drawer. And I watched him pull out of the driveway and I took his graduation money and went and bought heroin with it, you know, and <clears throat> for so long he had a, you know, understandable resentment or angst towards me. And I, you know, through the financial amends, you know, I was able to write that wrong, but to, to live better and, you know, live a leaf, live a life clean of drugs and alcohol and to be of service in my community was a way to live amends because he mm-hmm. not only did he realize that I was sorry about the money, but that I was actually living a better life, you know, mm-hmm. because for so long, he just looked at his older brother as like, you know, a piece of shit drug addict, you know, that was never going to change. But, you know, because for me, the best apology is to change behavior, you know, mm-hmm. The best amends is to, you know, change your behavior and change who you were in that spiritually sick state. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great, great information. Thank you for sharing and elaborating on that. Um, 
Can you speak a little bit about why people might be motivated to engage in service work? Um, you know, because, you know, for me and all the people I do know that engage in like, you know, next level service work, like chairing a meeting or come, you know, coming to a meeting and making people, you know, newcomers feel welcome. Um, it's truly rewarding. You know, it's like, it's a high that you don't have to pay for, I guess, you know, because like when I, when I'm working with someone who's early on in recovery and then I see like the light come on, so to speak, mm -hmm. or see them like walk into a room, you know, initially with that, that, that freaked out look, you know, like that bug, like, you know, because when you walk into rooms of recovery and you're, you know, you're on like day two or three and you see all these people that are nice to you, it kind of freaks you out, you know, but when I see people coming to the rooms of recovery and they're comfortable coming and then they're there like sharing what they're going through, whether it's good or bad, but they're comfortable doing it, mm -hmm. you know, making people comfortable in their own skin. Because once we get comfortable in our own skin, we can take our mask off and then we can, you know, figure things out. Mm -hmm. And then life just becomes that much sweeter, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's what motivates me is to see life become that much better for certain people, you know? That's great. That's great. So passing along that light that was given to you. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's awesome. Awesome. And what advice do you have um, to people who are in recovery or maybe seeking recovery? Um, learn the difference between motives and motivation. Because when I was in recovery, when I was in active addiction, everything was a motive. Like it was, how am I going to get money? How am I going to get dope? Who am I going to get over on? You know, like motives to me are something, it's a plan or a goal that has a selfish or self-will serving end, you know, but to, but motivation for me, it's, you know, it's something, a goal or something that's, that's going to benefit the world around me because I'm motivated. It's not selfish. It's not, you know, just about me and I'm motivated today. You know what I mean? To be, mm -hmm. to be a better, you know, son, to be a better boyfriend to be a better father to be a better you know person in my community um you know and uh anyone who's seeking recovery your misery can be refunded to you you know you just give this new way of life a shot you know like a real shot because we're addicts man and we suck at moderation like when I was out there using I didn't you know do one pill or you know smoke one joint or you know drink one beer I was out there to like kill myself quickly, you know, and I didn't even know it. So give this new way, do new way life a shot because like, if you don't like it, if it doesn't work for you and give it some real time, you know, it's going to get uncomfortable. It's going to be, you know, awkward. You're going to go, you're going to experience a lot of emotions and that's fine because like when you're experiencing emotions, that means you're living again. You're starting to become alive because for so long, but through drugs and alcohol, or whatever you struggled with, you just become numb. And then that's why we use more and it becomes more and more progressive because, you know, it doesn't, the same amount doesn't work. So, we, you know, we want to keep suppressing what we're afraid of or what we're trying to not talk about or whatever traumatized us. So we, you know, keep going and it just gets worse. And then we're a full-blown meth head or a full-blown heroin addict or both, you know, or we're a full-blown alcoholic. And, you know, so give this new way of life a shot. One thing I can tell people early in recovery is, you know, it's easy to get out of your comfort zone once you were you realize how comfortable you are being miserable all the time. You know, someone said that to me earlier on in my recovery. And once I heard that, um, I was all in, you know.
Great advice. Great advice. And I like what you said about, um, you know, recovery to live, right? So do you want to live? Um, have your life, live your life um, versus being numb. You know, and that's, that's one of the things that drug court ultimately taught me is like, you know, because I got to a point where I just wanted to be different. And I'm going to share just a little information of what actually made me put all my chips into the table Mm -hmm. Um, for, you know, five years, my last five years of my using career in Green Bay. um, I was out of control, to say the least. And when I was during my last relapse, I was already in drug court and I had, you know, a one week sanction for, you know, lying and, you know, using drugs. So they put me on the GPS and they gave me a week in jail to sober up and give it another go. And someone that I used to run the streets with really, you know, like, you know, we were like Bonnie and Clyde, but, you know, it was a guy. And um, he, I saw him in passing in hallway in the jail and he had just got sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for you know distributing methamphetamine or whatever and as i passed him in the hallway he told me about what happened to him or you know his sentence and as we were passing by he he gave me a brief you know what happened to him i got 20 years and he goes listen man you're too good for this life get out of it and i'm like all right man whatever and then i went back to my unit and then they locked us all down and then we were in our cells all morning and all of a sudden the CEO hands us our trays through the slot and I go, what happened? Why are we locked down? And he goes, Makani and in CPOD hung himself last night. And that was the guy who talked to me and mm-hmm. told me what had happened to him. And then I, I sat there and I just really like deeply reflected. Was that the last thing that he said to anyone, you know, and then, it, and then throughout the day, I'm like looking at my little tray of food, you know, jail's got that distinct smell. Um, you know, I'm listening to my cellmate tell me the same 20 stories for the hundredth time. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I was just like, this is not how my story ends. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, he, I was in the hallway with him for that moment, right before he hung himself for a reason. Mm -hmm. And then I found my purpose. I found my calling. And then when they let me out that day, I was all in, I was done Mm -hmm. playing games with my life. And my, I realized through the, the, you know, the structure of drug court, they made me realize how important my life and my freedom was to me. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing about that. Very, very powerful. Very powerful. Um, and I want to, and I want to thank you again for your time and want to talk a little bit about where can people find you? Where's your website? <clears throat> All right. We have a website. It's, um, it's N G U L U Inc.com. That's our website. And then we have a Facebook page, um, it's a private page, so you can come talk about your stuff privately as long as you remember. It's just never give up, level up. Um, it's on Facebook. Um, we have about 15,000 members. So those are the, the two spots you can find us, or you can reach out to me personally through Messenger, um, Matthew Traver. Um, yeah, but that's where we're at. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me or join the group. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Matt. It was a pleasure talking with you today. Um, again, you can find Never Give Up's website at uh, com and reach out to them through Facebook, Never Give Up, Level Up, or through Messenger. Um, and thank you again to our listeners, and I hope everyone has a nice day. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. <laughs>